Hey, uh, rest assured this is iced coffee, but this is going to sound like a bit of an odd note to kick off with. But if Mrs. Bennet died in the opening chapters of Pride and Prejudice, everything in the story would run smoothly, and the book would only run to about 50 pages at most. She's not the hero or the villain of the story, but she does play a crucial role in the developments that affect the heroes and villains of the piece, to the extent that without her sticking her oar in everyone's business, people would just get on with their lives and sort shit out for themselves. She is a literary MacGuffin, existing solely for the narrative necessities that make the story interesting enough for Jane Austen to bother writing it all down. Few people in our lives hold such a singular influence over the events around them, but I think I've spotted one in the second government-backed German expedition to Antarctica. He does read as the villain of the piece, because his interfering was directed at and impacted on our would-be hero. After Drygalski's achievements didn't sufficiently outshine those of Lieutenant Scott during the Gauss's winter in the south, Germany's governing bodies didn't consider Antarctica much until a young, Swiss-born lieutenant in the Prussian army, Wilhelm Filchner, recently returned from impressive exploratory journeys, including a solo horseback trek in the Pamir region of Central Asia, and the leadership of a magnetic survey party making inroads into the remote and deliberately politically isolated nation of Tibet, floated the idea of a German return south in 1908. My word, that was a long sentence. Filchner wanted to take two ships to Antarctica, each sailing as far south as possible from opposite sides of the continent, establishing winter quarters in the Weddell and the Ross Seas. One team would cross the continent to the Pole, and the other would offer support for the egress journey, effecting the first complete crossing of the continent and earning Germany primacy at the Pole. Filchner's solo peregrinations in the Pamir Mountains funded by the Prussian army, saw him accused of spying and banned from further travel in Russia. This Russian reproach made Filchner, spy or not, a national hero. His notoriety made his account of the journey a bestseller and earned him an honorary doctorate from the University of Konigsberg. All this recognition helped get him an audience with Kaiser Wilhelm II in early 1910. The Kaiser declined to approve the expedition, thinking it wise to await Count von Zeppelin's eventually kicking all the remaining geographical firsts with his amazing airships. The words, You will not make this expedition, understood? Only in German, were actually spoken. Pretty damning stuff, especially if you take a quick look at a portrait of Kaiser Wilhelm II and imagine him rebuking you in this way in his native tongue. When Filchner, in a fairly gumptious move given the time and the company, responded, Majesty, I have already resolved to lead the expedition. The Kaiser turned his back and strode from the room. Even without royal approval, Filchner had to get south to apply some ice to that burn. Man, those German monarchs really knew how to chew someone out. Turned his back and strode from the room. I'm just going to pause for a moment and consider how my life might look if the worst thing anyone in a position of power chose to do to belittle, bully, or otherwise lash out at me was turn their back on me and stride from the room. That's nice.
That's some nice imaginings right there. Still, none of the Kaiser's personal funds lay in the offing. A subsequent meeting with Prince Regent Leutpold, ruler of Bavaria, in the stead of his mentally ill nephew, King Otto, garnered a lot more enthusiasm. At the time, three schools of thought about the nature of Antarctica prevailed. Some, such as Shackleton, thought it comprised a single landmass. Nansen favoured the hypothesis that a chain of islands lay beneath the ice. Chair of Geography at Berlin University, Friedrich Albert Penck, thought it most likely East and West Antarctica comprised distinct entities separated by a frozen-over waterway. With this question still unanswered, and the young army lieutenant backing the idea championed by such a prominent German academic, Filchner managed to generate enough fervour for what he couched as low-hanging exploratory fruit that the Prince Regent agreed to act as patron. Leutpold's influence brought together a committee of over 200 bankers, bureaucrats and professors who began a public lottery to raise funds. Army colleagues and superiors gave what support they could, mostly by introducing Filchner to people of influence among the government. The Berlin Geographical Society also gave their seal of approval, and Penck became an enthusiastic champion of the project, campaigning for its public support. The expedition would go ahead on 1.4 million marks, none of it from the state. The funds didn't run to the two ships Filchner originally hoped to use in approaching the problem from opposite sides of the continent, but did run to purchasing the excellent Norwegian vessel, Björn. The purpose-built polar exploration ship Shackleton would have liked to purchase for his expedition, but couldn't afford, making do with the smelly old Nimrod. Fritjof Nansen and Otto Nordenkjöld, whose name I've been mispronouncing throughout the series, helped Filchner select the ship, and Sir Ernest helped supervise the fitting out to Antarctic spec, including strengthening the hull for icework, the fitting of additional boilers to those of the 300 horsepower engine, specifically engineered to accept penguin and seal blubber as fuel in order to keep the cabins heated, and electric lighting throughout the interior. Unfortunately, Shackleton also impressed on his German counterpart his Armitage-mediated enthusiasm for ponies as transport in high latitudes, in spite of the logical shortcomings of taking a herbivore to a continent with no plants, and his own less-than-stellar performance in using them in the Ross Sea. Filchner renamed the vessel Der Deutschland, continuing the dumb tradition of naming a ship after the place it came from, thereby making anything named after the ship confusingly homonymous. Filchner's preparations to venture into the Antarctic at the same time as Scott raised the ire of the English press, and in an attempt to ally any ill will, Wilhelm headed to London to meet with his British counterpart. In the course of their discussions, Scott convinced Filchner to leave the Ross Quadrant to him. Together, they mapped out how best to coordinate their observations and thereby multiply the scientific utility of their efforts. Filchner also met with William Spears Bruce, at the time seeking to get a second Scottish expedition south underway. The German agreed to steer clear of Coatsland, though this was more through eagerness to maximise the oceanographic findings of the two expeditions than because of any sense of ownership of the area on Bruce's part. 
Impressed by Filchner's enthusiasm to begin his oceanographic research as soon as the Deutschland left port, the Scotsman shared his expertise and experiences generously and wished the German expedition well. Like Shackleton, Bruce thought the Antarctic continent comprised a single landmass, but felt any new oceanographic data or exploration of new ground could only be to the benefit of humanity's understanding of the region. Filchner was among those seeing off Scott as he departed south to catch up with the Terra Nova. As the train drew away from Waterloo Station on July 16, 1910, Scott called out to the German, See you at the pole! But that Scott, by all accounts, didn't feel his attempt on the pole faced any competitive threat until Amundsen's telegram from Madeira turned up indicates he didn't take the German expedition very seriously, at least on the polar front. Filchner, eager to capitalise on his collaboration with Scott, kept any mention of the pole out of his expedition branding, even though to successfully traverse from the Waddell to the Ross Sea would place his team at or near the pole, he didn't want to put English noses out of joint. Given that much of the nation, at the prompting of Sir Clements Markham and similarly inclined pompous asses, blamed Amundsen in part for Scott's death, Either Filchner's attempts to distance his project from polar ambition succeeded, or Britain as a whole also didn't rate his chances highly. In assembling his team, Filchner noted that no one among them boasted much high-latitudes experience, and so organised a crossing of Spitsbergen as a shakedown trip. Unable to accommodate his ponies all the way above the Arctic Circle, Filchner had to sell them en route. The six men and one dog that did reach the island found conditions far more challenging than expected, and newspapers began to speculate that they must have died when blizzards hampered progress, delaying their return to civilization. The shakedown did its job, though, helping identify strengths and weaknesses in equipment, and teaching harsh but necessary lessons about what to expect in the South. Had Scott's preparations for his first expedition stretched to such an outing, the learning curves experienced during the Discovery expedition would have been less steep and more might have been achieved, though as we'll cover shortly, it didn't help Filchner to any great extent, because no amount of preparation and training can account for the impact of a powerful and possibly sociopathic nemesis. From among the many scientists supplying to sail with the expedition, Filchner selected oceanographer Wilhelm Brennick, astronomer Erich Pritzbillock, Austrian biologist and alpine climber Felix Koenig, geologist Fritz Heim, and geographer Heinrich Seelheim. After a protracted gestation, the expedition got underway in early May 1911, with an ambition to establish a winter quarters for a scientific team of seven in support of a sledging team of four. The Deutschland sailed from Bremerhaven under the command of Richard Varsell, previously featuring in the series as the second officer aboard the Gauss during Drygalski's expedition, and coming with high commendations from that expedition's leader. Commander of the Gauss during its Antarctic voyage, Commodore Hans Rusa, wrote to Filchner advising that Varsell was a difficult personality whose heavy drinking and belligerent nature caused him significant leadership trouble while the Gauss lay in the ice. During the preparations, drunk and boasting, Vassal claimed he could put Filchner in irons if he saw fit. Filchner thought this high spirits at the time, but later had reason to rethink this, 
In spite of Roos's warnings, the expedition committee backed Varsel, based on his being one of the few active naval officers with high latitudes experience, and Filchner's hand was forced. Varsel insisted on the appointment of officers and men from his previous ships, including the ice pilot and the carpenter from the Gauss, Paul Björvik and August Riemers respectively. As the expedition was slated to sail under the aegis of the Imperial Navy, Varsel would hold authority over operations while the ship was at sea, with Filchner taking over once ashore. Amundsen's reservations about split leadership, see episode 44, must have rung resonating alarm bells in Filchner's mind. But without a master's qualifications and experience, he wasn't in a position to command a ship himself, and had to bite the biscuit handed him. The ship sailed with 33 men and two motorised sledges, inspired by Scott's enthusiasm for Skelton's designs. The 75 dogs and eight replacement ponies joining the ship at Buenos Aires and South Georgia respectively. The ship featured a radio telegraphy system and, while only capable of transmissions over medium distances, stands the expedition as the first recounted in this series to hold some scope for communication between the expedition and the outside world. Once at sea, Vassal fulfilled Roos's forebodings by constantly arguing with chief scientist Seelheim, to the point Varsel spat the dummy. He sent Filchner, who'd stayed behind to finish paperwork and last-minute funding arrangements, a radio telegraph resigning the captaincy. Relieved to be rid of the malcontent, Filchner turned to Albert Kling, first officer on the ship that carried him to Buenos Aires, who agreed to fill Varsel's shoes. Unfortunately, by the time they reached Argentina, it was Seelheim who'd left the ship and Varsel remained. Kling still shipped as second officer, disappointed to play third fiddle to such an obviously mercurial captain, but content to follow his new friend, Filchner, south. The motor sledges, deemed too bulky, were left in Buenos Aires. While the Deutschland bunkered coal and viddled fresh provisions in port, the Fram, having established Amundsen and his winter team at the Bay of Wales and conducted extensive oceanographic work in the Atlantic, arrived and began preparing for their next foray. Filchner knew he might be late in his attempt on the pole, but having never played up that aspect of the expedition, didn't stand to lose face if Scott or Amundsen preceded him. He was far happier to see the Fram than Campbell had been aboard the Terranova. The German and Norwegians got along well in port, and the crew of the Fram sent the Deutschland off with rousing cheers. The ship reached South Georgia on the 18th of October and lay, poised to make the most of the Austral exploring season. While waiting for the summer thaw to ease the hold of the ice in the Weddell Sea, Filchner's crew spent two weeks at Grytviken, the settlement now thriving with over a thousand resident Scandinavians and a smaller population of British officials, just seven years after Carl Anton Larsen's founding of a whaling enterprise there. Astronomer Eric Pritzbillock reopened a mothballed observatory at Royal Bay, a remnant of the International Polar Year, for magnetic and meteorological observations and crew members made a survey voyage along the island's coast 
and to the outermost specks of land comprising the archipelago, of which South Georgia is the largest island, the Scotia Ark. They used a whaling vessel on loan from Carl Larson, the Undine. Among the features charted during these forays is a fjord, named after Filchner's predecessor in the region, Drygalski. Third officer, Walter Slosarczyk, was lost overboard, and while written up in the log as an accident, some expedition members suspected suicide, and given the unhappy mode of the ship, Varsel continuing to hold Derousse's predictions, that might be understandable. One of the expedition's two doctors, Ludwig Kohl, suffered appendicitis and went ashore to the Gripviken infirmary, where one of Larsen's daughters nursed him and later became engaged to him. Cole is alleged to have cured his appendicitis after the ship left, which in pre-antibiotic South Georgia is quite a thing. Either it wasn't acute appendicitis, in which case appendectomy is usually necessary, or it was something else, my money for the alternate being on a physician experiencing phantom symptoms and signs in response to being stuck on a ship of venomous leadership problems about to embark on a dangerous mission in parts unknown. Cole went on to further explorations as an anthropologist, struggling to fit national socialist doctrine to evidence that didn't support the conclusions. While working in Africa, he discovered fossilised hominid remains, likely of Australopithecus afarensis, but didn't identify them as such, thereby dodging the fame and accolades that later went to Mary Leakey, who worked over the same ground in Laetoli. On another interesting note in the story of a repeating player in the ice coffee narrative, Carl Anton Larsen took British citizenship in 1910 to help him in his dealings with British officialdom as expressed in rents, licences and other hurdles to financial success in that part of the Southern Ocean Britain felt proprietorial toward. The Norwegian whalers happily shared information about Weddell Sea ice conditions. The reported numbers of icebergs seen departing the Weddell Sea region in recent years led Filchner to expect open waters every second year, and the whalers thought the present year a good one for the Deutschland's proposed track. But Filchner expressed reservations about their chances of returning to civilization in his diary. The Deutschland made a visit to the South Sandwich Islands, and on the 10th of December, Filchner committed in spite of his reservations, and the ship headed for the Weddell Sea. Variable ice and weather conditions made progress intermittent. The Deutschland encountered little pack ice in the first week, but a dense girdle of icebergs and drifting flows in the week after that. Toward the end of January, a sounding at 3.5 kilometres depth returned blue clay on the lead, such fine sediment being indicative of a continental landmass nearby, it being the result of long-term pulverisation of rocks by glaciers. The mills of Antarctica grind slowly, but they grind extremely fine. On the 28th of January, ice conditions eased, and on the 29th, the Deutschland exceeded Waddell's record southernmost point in the region later named after him, established almost a century earlier, with no one even coming close to the mark in the interim. On the 30th of January, the lookout spotted land to the southeast. Above a line of cliffs, the continent appeared to rise to a height of 600 metres at the horizon, capped by a rocky peak, definite land marking the southern limit of the Weddell Sea. 
Filchner named this Prince Regent Leutpold Land. The coast of ice cliffs Filchner named after the Kaiser, the Wilhelm II Ice Shelf. Examination of penguin guts turned up basaltic rocks, consistent with the extant knowledge of other regions of the continent, and therefore not shedding any new light on the key question about the nature of Antarctica that the expedition sought to answer. Filchner looked for a solid footing for their winter quarters, sailing along the ice barrier first to the west and then to the northeast, but no obvious landings came to light. As the summer passed and days became visibly shorter with each 24-hour period, Varsel became agitated about the safety of the vessel. Filchner named the area Varsel Bay, but this nod to mutual benefit was lost on the captain, who continued to ridicule the expedition leader, compounding discontent aboard the ship. With their goal in sight but unreachable, and the chances of becoming iced in growing daily, tensions flared and tempers frayed. Varsel began to assert that beating Waddell's southernmost record was the main focus of the expedition, likely a difficult claim to keep with a straight face given the piles of sledging equipment and deckhouses full of ponies and hut-building materials filling his ship. Probably time I mentioned Varsel was, among a variety of other ailments, playing host to the Treponema pallidum bacterium, subspecies pallidum, the sexually transmitted agent better known as syphilis, and exhibiting the mental degeneration associated with the late stages of the disease. Allegiances to Filchner and Varsel split the crew in half. By mid-February, really late in the season to be faffing about at 78 degrees south, Varsel bowed to pressure from Filchner and made ready to put the shore party on a sloping face of ice, offering access to the interior. Filchner felt uncomfortable at the aspect, deeming the winter quarters site Varsel proposed too close to the water and the ice too insecure. Varsel, champing at the bit to get heading north, told his leader he would consult with Seaman Bjorvik for a second opinion, returning to assert that Bjorvik gave the site his tick of ice pilot approval and, based on that, Filchner agreed to get the landing underway. With stores going ashore and work on the hut underway, the bosun fronted Filchner and accused him of ignoring the advice of experienced men. Taken aback, Filchner sorted out the extremely cross-crossed wires. Varsel never consulted Bjorvik, who thought the site, comprising floating ice close to open water, constituted an extremely bad selection. When Filchner fronted Varsel about this, the captain blithely accused the sailors of lying to Filchner and, given the disparity in social standing between officers and seamen generally, and particularly within a German cultural context, had to be taken seriously in spite of the alleged lies being on hand for any potential inquiry into the truth of the matter. With this leadership impasse showing no sign of resolving itself short of revolvers at dawn and the summer drawing to a close, Filchner decided to make the best of the situation and the unloading of materials, stores, animals and instruments continued at 77 degrees 45 minutes south, 34 degrees 34 minutes west. For eight days the Germans worked at building their winter quarters hut and settling their bloody Manchurian ponies and Greenland dogs into their accommodations. Shortly after construction came to a close and the scientific instruments were installed and calibrated, an unusual tidal maxima brought about by a spring high tide and a falling barometer 
caused widespread iceberg carving. Bearing the newly completed hut, the ramped ice tongue broke away from the shelf and began to drift north as a berg, taking the animals and seven very distressed members of the crew with it. The breakout, featuring some bergs tens of kilometres long, placed the Deutschland in tremendous danger and made approaching the Hutberg to rescue the crew, animals and hut resources extremely difficult, as an estimated 600 square kilometres of shelf, comprising an estimated 50 billion cubic metres of ice, just upped stumps and headed for open water all in one hit. For two days, the Deutschland kept pace with the mobile winter quarters as the men dismantled the hut and transferred the materials and animals to the ship via block and tackle and lifeboats. One dog refused to come with them, and sailed north with the parts of the hut deemed not worth retrieving, which carried with a note Filchner penned, explaining the circumstances to anyone finding the remnants of their unfortunate first attempt at gaining a foothold on the continent. The large number of large icebergs still littering the waters of Prince Regent Leutpold land precluded a second landing on the Kaiser Wilhelm ice shelf, and Varsil, barely chagrined at his failure to accurately read the nature of the first landing site, allowed the ship to drift for several days, waiting for better weather that might allow them to sail clear of the icebergs spawned by the breakout, and on to find a more suitable landing. As February ran into March, Filchner changed his plans, intending to depot the stores they would need for a continental venture the following summer, and to winter with the ship in South Georgia. Black flags marked the depot site, built 100 metres above sea level on more definitely grounded ice, under Kling's direction, but the full cache of stores never made it ashore. On the 6th of March, Varsel declared the ship would head north to South Georgia, and, being captain of the ship, that's what happened, or at least began to happen. Varsel's eagerness to get away from the ice, a nearly disastrous attempt to establish winter quarters, spurred by Varsel's horror at the thought of being frozen in for the winter, wound up seeing the ship frozen in for the winter, as the rapidly chilling weather saw new ice form around the ship to the point they made no further way beyond the 15th. Explosives. Dynamite this time, supplied free by Alfred Nobel, no less. Was used to try to break the ship free, but the rapidly cooling sea refroze even the limited leads achieved. The boilers were shut down. The Deutschland was in place for the winter and, lacking the ice-climbing hull of the Fram, in danger of being pinched and holed if adverse winds and tides brought pressure to bear on them. The sea ice began to carry the ship in its slow, inexorable rotation through the Weddell Sea. As the ice grew thick enough to reliably take the weight of such activities, Filchner ordered temporary huts be erected for oceanographic and meteorological observations and the housing of the animals. In episode 26, I recorded that the loss of the Antarctic gave members of the Swedish expedition their best night's sleep in some time, as the tension of uncertainty came to an end, and an analogous outcome seems to have affected the crew of the Deutschland at this point. Having definitely fallen on one horn of the stay-go dilemma, the crew became more cohesive than their divided allegiance had allowed for some time. The huts and animal accommodations went up quickly, and the scientific observation routines kicked off. Oceanography and plankton sampling kicked off through holes drilled in the sea ice. 
meteorological series continued, but with room to spread out on the ice, the scientists could incorporate balloon and kite-borne instrument bundles into their measurements. Magneticians' instruments were rigged and began making measurements in early April. The goodwill didn't last long. As construction came to an end and the scientific routines became the main activity, the bad blood circulated once more. Contrasted with the largely congenial winter spent aboard the Gauss, the 1912 winter spent aboard the Deutschland was one of tensions and hermetic habits. With no musician aboard, attempts at concerts fell flat and sharp at the same time, and most of the crew retreated to their cabins, their private musings, and alcohol. The ship's alcohol supply was in the charge of the navigation officer, Filchner figuring his teetotal habits would preclude him being goaded into releasing enough for binges. But personal stashes supplemented the ship's issue, and many livers were put to the test with some hard-out Teutonic drinking, Varsel leading away with his private supply of whisky. Toastiness set in. Fights broke out. The astronomer, Fritz Billock, took after the biologist, Koenig, with a set of crampons for waking him up by the decidedly amateur practical joke of dripping water on his head. The oak door of his cabin saved Koenig's hide, and Fritz Billock later denied any animus, acting as though nothing happened, in spite of the deep gouges in Koenig's cabin door. Other minor slights and accidents brought forth threats of duels, and it might be that the Antarctic night at that latitude last so long that the dearth of dawns saved a few lives among these men to whom honour resonated so loud that the scars or smites earned in fraternity-based academic fencing bouts, or mensur, were carried with great pride. Dr. Wilhelm von Geldel began making threats on the lives of his crewmates and waving a pistol about in the best traditions of the Hippocratic Oath. He woke Filchner one night, yelling about a fight with the carpenter and the boatswain. Drunk and waving his pistol, Filchner spent several hours talking the doctor down, eventually getting him to bed, but then having to deal with an equally drunk astronomer. With Varsel and Filchner no longer speaking, and First Officer Lorenzen and Dr. von Geldel growing increasingly antagonistic, oceanographer Brennick spontaneously formed a ship's council to represent the crew's concerns to Filchner. Such an action would result in charges and courts martial in any other naval circumstance. But Filchner, being an army officer and Brennick a scientist, the matter never received the attention it warranted. Recognising this licence, the council worked to further undermine what leadership Filchner could wield while still aboard the ship and under Varsel's command. When Koenig claimed someone shot at him while he worked on the ice, the council met to investigate the matter. Filchner and Koenig both suspected Dr. von Geldel fired the bullet, which Koenig retrieved, but the council jeered and goaded the claimant, while von Geldel belligerently threatened to have Koenig placed in a straitjacket. Filchner somehow defused the situation, but the ship was in danger of spiralling out of control under these conditions, and Filchner felt helpless to rectify the matter. Varsel, gradually sliding into endgame syphilitic dementia, and regularly drinking what was left of his senses to insensibility, didn't help matters, taunting Filchner about his hemorrhoids and timing his visits to the head for further leering goads. 
the mixed Navy-Army leadership that the Expedition Committee inflicted on the expedition, gave the crew leeway to effectively mutiny against Filchner, and with the bullying and increasingly deranged Vassil on one hand, and the murderously unhinged von Goldel on the other, he had nowhere to jump. So it's unfortunate at this point that he fell. Filchner bruised some ribs in a fall from the rigging, preventing him from taking part in activity of any kind for some weeks. As soon as he was recovered sufficiently, that being in late June, Filchner led a sledging foray with Kling and Koenig, seeking Benjamin Morell's New South Greenland, reported in 1823, see episode 13, which lay only 60 nautical miles from the ship's present position. That's the stated reason for the foray in Filchner's account of the expedition, though I think away from was perhaps more important to Filchner than toward at that point. The trio departed with two sledges, 16 dogs and three weeks supplies on the 23rd of June. The sea ice surface didn't offer easy progress. Low temperatures at midwinter, sometimes falling as low as negative 35 degrees Celsius, prevented the sledge runners operating effectively. Kling's writing on the experience carries a darkly romantic air. We glided along noiselessly, as if we were heading for Valhalla. Everything around us was as silent as the grave. Only the monotonous crunching of the sledges and Koenig's shouts to his dogs broke the demonic silence. Miserably cold in their tent and suffering frost nips every time they attempted scientific observations, the trio persevered for 30 miles, but with no land in sight, began to question the veracity of Morel's claims. They lowered an ad hoc shot line through a hole in the ice, the line, not designed for such treatment, broke under its own weight after the men paid out 1.6 kilometres. With water in excess of that beneath them, the chances of a landmass such as that Morel described within 30 nautical miles of their position would require some serious rewriting of the geography books, and Filchner generously wrote the 1823 claims off as a mirage, where a less kind person might say Morel was a big old liar. Heading back to the Deutschland proved even harder than the outward journey. Open leads caused by movements in the sea ice necessitated large detours, and young ice in some of the smaller cracks proved treacherously thin, causing several partial immersions in the sub-zero degrees Celsius water. Eight days after setting out, the trio returned to the ship. Quite a feat of navigation on Kling's part, given the moving target the ship presented as the Weddell Sea currents kept the ice on the move displacing the Deutschland by 38 nautical miles during their journey, and that operating a sextant in the low temperatures made a gruelling two-hour task out of an operation usually requiring only 10 minutes. A wide lead of new ice required the lifeboats be launched to retrieve the sledging party. Filchner's excursion placed Varsel in a logical bind. Having spent the period of Filchner's absence painting the expedition leader as a coward, perhaps not expecting to see Filchner again, he now had to face Filchner returning from the wastelands, showing obvious signs of his travails, but undaunted, and definitely no coward. Varsil's bind didn't last long though, as he died on the 8th of August. Suffering a variety of maladies ranging from constant colds, rheumatism, unexplained exhaustion, and heart complaints, perhaps some psychosomatic, 
and perhaps others exacerbated by his syphilis. The exact cause of death is unknown, but it is known that the death caused a marked shift in the operating mean and overall mood of the ship. It made things worse. Filchner would have liked to put Kling in the captain's dead man's boots, but feared that to give the job to the man he'd already given the job to while in transit to Buenos Aires might see those factions within the crew already turned against him revolt, giving the drunken Dr. von Gerdel just enough extra impetus to carry through on his murderous threats. Instead, the job fell to First Officer Lorenzen, galling to Filchner given the animosity he'd already experienced from the man, offering his jibes from behind the bullying captain. When Lorenzen signed his name in the log as captain, Filchner reached across and crossed out the honorific, and Lorenzen deemed this sufficient a slight to his honour that he fainted, or at least pretended to, and this became the mean of his leadership from that point. Lorenzen would challenge Filchner, Filchner would call his bluff, and Lorenzen would feign a swoon. Koenig, struggling with the situation, showed signs of an impending nervous breakdown. Trusted with his care, von Geldel was suspected by some of attempting to poison the biologist. Certainly, Filchner mistrusted the man to the point he began sleeping on the floor, in case the doctor should try to shoot him through the bulkhead of his cabin in the night. He tried sending Kling to retrieve the laxatives he needed to help ease the distress caused by his hemorrhoids, but the doctor refused to dispense to anyone other than the patient in question. When Kling later tried to claim the Senecot was for his personal use, the doctor made him take a double dose, right there and then, and since Senecot isn't much fun even when you desperately need it, Kling had to stop trying to secure his leader's medication. In mid-September, Filchner, optimistic about their position relative to open water and the state of the ice around the ship, requested that Lorenzen order that steam be gotten up, but the first officer refused the request, or fainted. Accounts aren't clear. In mid-November, with the ice breaking up around them due to the mechanical action of waves as the Waddell circulation brought the ship near to open water, the huts were dismantled and the animals brought back on board. The ship got up steam and the Deutschland could finally make way. The ice released them at 63 degrees 37 minutes south. The Deutschland covered more than 10 degrees of latitude, 600 nautical miles, in the months spent in the sea ice. Lorenzen set a course for South Georgia, reaching Gritviken on the 19th of December. Those on shore heard a great ruckus as the bitter, simmering disputes on the ship boiled over. The shouting and sounds of scuffles drew the attention of the chief of police, who rode out to the ship to see if his assistance was needed. Filchner declined his help, but Lorenzen lost his shit, screaming demands that Filchner be removed immediately from his ship. An unfounded rumour that the crew would not be paid saw most seamen side with Lorenzen. Carl Anton Larsen joined them, hoping to mediate a resolution, but Lorenzen and those of the crew who backed him refused to have anything further to do with Filchner. They left the ship at Gridviken, returning to Germany via Buenos Aires on commercial vessels. Once home, they gave damning reviews of Filchner's leadership, so when the unfortunate expedition leader requested additional funds for a refit to the Deutschland in Buenos Aires and another year in the south, 
The response came as a resounding order to return to Germany and account for his actions. The ponies, left behind on Grytviken, starved, and the dogs were mostly shot to prevent them running wild and thereby posing a threat to the whalers and their families. Back in Germany, a court of honour, a form of arbitration geared to prevent public slanging matches playing out in the newspapers, heard all the accusations Lorenzen's backers wanted to air. The testimony of several of the scientists who stood by Filchner directly contradicted that of his detractors and brought many of the allegations against the leader into question. The court found no reason to criticise Filchner but, not being a legally binding body, couldn't prevent the disgruntled parties slinging shit in the newspapers anyway. Dr. von Goldel publicly claimed Filchner lacked honour, drawing forth a challenge to a duel and resulting in von Goldel retracting his comment because he lacked honour. Digression. I don't think honour is up to much. It seems to be some amorphous concept people pull out of the air when they want to denigrate someone but don't have anything else to go on. So I don't give any fucks if someone disputes my honour quotient. But I fucking hate hypocrisy, which is a thing, and readily demonstrable. And you don't even have to establish an ethical framework or assess the merits of a particular doctrine to identify it. Just hold a person to their own loudly professed standards and point out where they fall short, as von Gerdel just demonstrated for us. Other than issuing his duelling challenge, Filchner chose not to join in the slanging, concentrating instead on his memoirs and the scientific publications. Penck came out in Filchner's corner, as did the Kaiser, whose turned back and strident striding previously let those present know he didn't think much of the expedition. Wilhelm II went so far as to order that the ice shelf Filchner named in his honour instead be named after Filchner, and that's how it's marked on charts and maps to this day. The oceanographic measurements comprised the expedition's lasting scientific legacy, demonstrating the waters of the Southern Ocean constituted the most productive waters on the planet. The southern summer sunlight fuels immense numbers of phytoplankton, single-celled photosynthetic organisms converting sunlight into chemical bonds, storing energy like biological batteries. While they do this entirely for their own benefit, they form the basis of the Southern Ocean food web, the same chemically stored energy serving those species able to ingest and digest the phytoplankton, in turn storing the energy in their own cells as glucogen, or in the case of many of the more complex organisms, lipids and fats. The high productivity measured in the Southern Ocean led to the next question. Where were the high nutrient concentrations necessary for such high phytoplankton productivity deriving from? As anyone who's grown vegetables knows, you don't just keep harvesting corn or potatoes from the soil indefinitely. You need to replenish the nitrogenous compounds, and to a lesser extent, the sulphur and phosphorus compounds, by rotating your food crops with nitrogen-fixing species, such as legumes, or by adding compost, or by hiring an awesome Fletcher Aerospace crop duster and applying manufactured fertilisers, and the pilot going... Oceanographers still wanted to know how the Southern Ocean could pump out the huge masses of biology observed, 
year after year without depleting the limiting nutrients. Brennick's temperature and density profiles told part of the story, mapping water bodies of different salinities and temperatures moving over and under each other at scales previously not recognised. But the whole picture wasn't in view yet, the first foggy view of the big picture still lying more than a decade away. What was clear, as a result of the voyage of the Deutschland, was that Antarctica played a huge role in driving circulation in the world's oceans. The clockwise rotation of the ice in the Weddell Sea corresponded to the prevailing wind patterns, but observations made during this first full winter spent afloat in the Weddell Sea ice noted that the ice quickly changed direction any time the wind did, leading to localised but very dense accumulations of ice in some areas, which exhibited extreme pressure until the wind resumed its accustomed direction and the ice resumed its clockwise circulation. The Deutschland was lucky that it never lay at the centre of one of these pressure nodes, or the ship would have been crushed and the crew marooned. As to the main objective of the expedition, supporting or refuting the hypothesis that Antarctic comprised two landmasses separated by a maritime strait. The stumbling blocks thrown in Filchner's way by Varsel's intransigence and the difficult-to-land-on ice shelf that now bears his name prevented the German expedition providing anything conclusive on the matter either way. But between the information brought north by the Japanese, Norwegian and German expeditions working concurrently in Antarctica during this period, it appeared that if a strait divided the continent in two, it must be a fairly narrow one. Filchner published his account of the voyage as To the Sixth Continent, the Second German South Polar Expedition featuring a forward by Otto Nordenkjold, who praised the German for discovering the southern limit of the Atlantic Ocean and for erasing Morel's New South Greenland from the charts. Compared to other Antarctic literature coming on the market in this era, it's a pretty dry read. The expedition didn't achieve anything spectacular, and Filchner excluded any mention of the tensions that made his experience of the voyage hellishly stressful. On selling the Deutschland to the Austrian government so Koenig could return south and continue the work, a project stymied by the First World War, the Deutschland becoming a minesweeper in the conflict, Filchner received an invitation to join his friend's expedition south, but demurred, citing that such forays should best be left to the Russians, Norwegians, Canadians and British, whose nations boasted well-established reputations for polar work, and returned to his travels in Central Asia, Amundsen invited Filchner north on the long-mooted and often-delayed oceanographic voyage in the Arctic. As noted in episode 45, the First World War delayed this voyage indefinitely, but unaware of this at the time, and also unaware of Filchner's unwillingness to return to high latitudes, and still pissy about the verdict of the Court of Honour, Brennick wrote to Amundsen in an attempt to smear his former leader and deprive him of any opportunity Amundsen might offer. Amundsen visited Filchner while in Berlin, and let him read the letter before burning it, reassuring Filchner that he knew better than to trust the words of a schemer over his own experience of Filchner, and bemoaning what he perceived as a particularly German trait of preferring to try to knock others down, rather than building themselves up. I don't know if I trust Amundsen's take on anything in this vein, though, given his track record in knocking others down when it served his purposes. Wilhelm Filchner returned to his surveying work in Central Asia 
spent the Second World War interned in India and making no bones about his disdain for National Socialism, and died at the age of 79 in Zurich. Shortly before his death, Filchner published his diaries from the expedition, appending signed affidavits from other crew members attesting the veracity of the damning narrative they contain, and it's this last-minute throwing of Prussian decorum to the wind that gives us our present insights into the troubles the expedition committee caused in insisting Varsil captain the Deutschland. There's no guarantee a different captain would have prevented the dismal, self-sustaining downward spiral of morale and trust aboard the Deutschland, but we know it did happen, and that Varsil played a large part in it. In a novel, you can move a deranged, interfering busybody to the periphery, but that's not always possible in real life, and in Antarctica, you don't even have the luxury of yelling fuck it all and walking away from the situation. If Jane Austen had made Mrs. Bennet the central character of Pride and Prejudice, or imbued Elizabeth Bennet with more of her mother's traits, it's likely that story would have ended in the courts and challenges to duels too. This story is what it is, though, and knowing it helped me decide to decline an invitation south with a man who, if he isn't in late-stage syphilitic dementia, is at least a sociopath. going to sign off with a thank you to Dave Steart, whose long friendship has meant a lot to me. Happy 50th, Dave. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Mm-hmm.